Well, here I am on the floor. You don't have to worry about me getting down those stairs again. We're into a family series, and uh, one of the assignments was to find a child who had just kind of grown straight to be godly. You look in the scriptures, they're hard to find. (laughs) And uh, we think about children, and one of the things an inexperienced parent thinks is that all children are perfect. Juanita has been worried about this sermon for a little while because she doesn't want me to give many family things, but most of my illustrations come from the family. So I'm going to try, I try to censor them as much as I could. But this idea that we are going to have perfect children, just lose it because there are going to be challenges with each one. We first job I had out of college was in a steel mill. Most challenging job I think I had for the rest of my career. Uh, turn foreman in a steel mill in the mill is a tough job. And one of the guys, uh, now the steel mill that I went to, hired 40 engineers in one year. They were going to turn the place around to be a little more like Bethlehem Steel. And so I was one of that class of 40 that walked into the steel mill and was not particularly well received by by the rank and file, if if the truth be told. But one of the the guys was expecting a baby. And uh, he went to the hospital, and he was so excited. He was was a sales guy anyway, so he lived with excitement. And he got to the nursery. He was told, oh, well, your baby's there in the nursery. You can go see the baby right through the window in the nursery. So he rushed over there, and as far as he was concerned, the only perfect baby in that nursery was his. And he's examining the baby as carefully as he can through the window. And this other guy comes up next to him, who was also looking at a baby, and expressing strong opinion on why his baby was the, was the prettiest of the lot. And I can still remember Tim saying, that guy must have been blind. I looked at that kid. <laughs> but we discover later that perfect children don't exist. And it throws down our own the job of parenting. And at this point, we begin to try and teach our children something and find out all of a sudden that it's really difficult to do, particularly spiritual things I think if we had one objective when that baby was born it was that they would come to know the Lord as their Savior and do it quick (laughs) wasn't quick enough to suit us all the time but the Lord was gracious and all all of the kids know the Lord some of this parenting and I'm going to focus on parents mostly as opposed to the children. Some of this parenting comes as quite a surprise. <laughs> you, For instance, one of the big problems was, how can you get this child to go to sleep at night when they don't want to go to bed? And they begin to associate lying in bed with 
something unpleasant. And so as you go in and try and lay them down to go to sleep, they start to cry. Well, we were informed shortly after that that it doesn't hurt babies to cry for a while. Well, that was a revelation, too, because we tended to run up as soon as there was a peep out of them. Our first child, Brian, was very compliant. And we could put him down, and he'd cry a little bit, but he'd, we didn't go and get him. So he stopped, and it wasn't long before we could lay him down, and that was it. He was off to sleep at night. We considered ourselves to be genius parents, <laughs> since our contemporaries seem to have long-term problems with that issue. Well, I can still remember. <laughs> then along came Brad, our second. Whoa. Where Brian was compliant, quiet, Brad was noisy and active. And we would put him in and he'd start crying and he'd keep going till he finally died out and went to sleep. But it took a long time. And we were hard pressed to not go in and pick Brad up. But I can still remember vividly trying to slip down the hall past Brad's room without waking him up. And most of the nights I didn't make it. So you'd have it quiet for about a half hour, and there I'd go, and this florid creak or something would happen. Yeah! Off, we were, off he went again. And so we went in, went to bed, but we had to listen to that go on for quite a while. Our parental skills suddenly came into question by us. As the children grew, their imperfections became a little more evident. There were, there were incidents where they were selfish, they were impatient, they were doing, they were human, what it really amounts to. And there is no parent that I know of that tries to teach their children to tell a lie. But when we caught them in something, they would generally blame it on someone else or try to convince us it never really happened. We seem to have to constantly correct their behavior. Were they really little sinners? That came to us. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, even our perfect children. And there they were. Could this be possibly be true of our kids? And we concluded that indeed it could be. And so that, that drove us to the point where we needed help from the Lord to raise these kids. We needed to be guided in what we did, what we said. Now, I was one that grew up pretending that I was saved because I went to a chapel for Sunday school. They picked me up, and I drove to the assembly, and we had, a, had Sunday school. And that Sunday school was not coloring. It was not little, little Bible stories. This was real teaching. Here's what the Bible says, and we got to know what, exactly what it is. So where's an example of a good kid in the scriptures? I had a little trouble finding one. They're not easy to find. And so as I usually do, I go back to the beginning. And that's what I'd like you to do. Let's look carefully, if we could, at some verses. And there's no excuse for not finding them. They're in Genesis, which is the first first book and it's about two pages in 
that we're going to look at. Genesis chapter 2. And two kids come into, come into view here. It's important to read it carefully. Verse 7 of chapter 2 talks about the creation of man. It says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the bread of life, and man became a living being. Okay, there's a very simple statement of creation. Flip on a little further. I'm skipping over some things to try and hold it all together. 16. The Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree at the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. He was still one. It was just Adam. The only human being on the planet, this rock zooming around the, <laughs> around the sun, didn't even know that was what it was. There wasn't anybody else to talk to, but it was God that talked to Adam. And he was pretty, pretty straightforward about it. I, there wasn't much to, much to make argument about. As he had one restriction, here he gave him a huge garden. Everything just grew by itself. They picked it up and ate it, and it was fine. And the Lord said to him, Okay, eat any tree of the garden, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It seemed like that would be an easy commandment, doesn't it? There's one tree someplace. You might want to build a fence around it or something so you didn't make any mistakes, but... If you eat of it, you surely die. Now, he had never seen anything die before. He didn't know how bad that was. But that was a clear statement to him. Verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep, anesthetic, to fall upon a man. And he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. This was the quickest heel recorded in Scripture, I think. Well, no, maybe that's not true. And the Lord fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. How do you know about this business of father and mother? At any rate, we'll skip over that question, which is kind of profound, too. Two shall become one flesh, marriage. Now, we go on to chapter 3, all the way to verse 21. But Adam had descendants. And if you look at those descendants, they overlapped in age. You know that Adam lived to be about 935 years old. And over that period of time, people were being born. And there would be Adam. Now, if you had that situation, wouldn't you want to talk to Adam? How'd you get here? What happened? What was your experience? What did the, You say the Lord said something to you. How, what did it sound like? How did he do that? And he told you not to do this one thing. And what did you do? 
Eight of it. Good night. What were you thinking about? So Adam was a source of information that I'm not sure that they took real advantage of. They knew. Adam was told, commanded, one thing. Just one thing you don't do. And that's eat of this tree. And what did they do? They ate of the tree. Now that wasn't just a minor thing. This was open rebellion. Because God said don't do it. What's the first thing they do is do it. You ever have that experience with your kids? Oh, you must have a bunch of perfect ones. <laughs> just about the time you say don't do something, don't t- whatever you do, don't touch that. You find it in three pieces in the other room. And nobody did it. Mr. Nobody came by and did it. But we knew that we needed that help from the Lord. And so we go to the story, the account, if you will, of the first two children. Chapter 4, first few verses. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. God had put them out of the Garden of Eden. Life was no longer simple. It was no longer easy. You didn't just have to stumble out the front door and find a full crop ready to eat. You had to get out and work because the ground was cursed. Have you ever tried to plant a garden? You know all about the curses. They arrive quickly. Why do weeds grow faster than good plants and be more hardy? I'm not real sure, but I think it's part of this curse that God told them was going to be true. You're going to have to work hard to get a crop. Remember that these were exceptional times. There were four people alive walking this whole planet. There were no neighbors. There was no family to turn to. There was no grandmother listed immediately there to get good advice on raising children. (laughs) We were amazed at some of the advice we got. These were the first two people on the planet and they knew God, the creator of everything, personally and walked with him and talked with him. Whoa, nobody else can say that. They knew God. And they were asked to obey one direction and they failed. And it was intentional. It was a first instance of sin And this carries right through to us and to our children. Goes with the humanness of each of us. The truth is, as the Bible says, that all have sinned and come short of the standard of God. And this is where death came into the equation. On all of humanity, God said it, and it happened. And it happens to this day. The first death of animals occurred in the case of Adam and Eve when they needed clothing and fig leaves didn't work. 
So they, God gave them skins to wear. And that involved the first death of animals. To me, it's one of the, one of the most touching examples over in the Creation Museum as you walk through the history of the Bible and creation. And you see these two sheep on an altar, skinned. So you had this progression. Husband, then wife, and sin, a curse that fell on all, any childhood that came, any kids that came, and death became a common occurrence. True of every human being. And they had this little family, two children, Adam and Eve. And there were two offerings, four, three, three and four A. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. So there were two offerings. I don't know how they decided that the Lord wanted an offering, but they did. And I, can you picture Cain's offering? The hard work that was required on the part of Cain to bring an offering to the Lord? I think of it just like a display of vegetables at Jungle Gyms. A ton of vegetables, a whole bunch of them. Looks like a cart to sell them. The very best he could find, the best pepper, the best this, the best that. They're in a pile, a great pile. You think he was proud of that? I suspect he was. There was a lot of sweat equity that went into producing that. And so here it was. And the the fact is, Cain and Abel were each had a different job and they couldn't overlap. Having a herd in a garden doesn't work very well. You put up a fence to keep the animals out so you get some fruit on the on the vine, if you will. So they couldn't do the both together. You had a herd, cattle, with Abel. You had the crops. Cain was working really hard on to come up with a, with a, a crop. How did they know about worship? Have you thought about that? That's always been a question that troubles me. How did Abel know what to bring, and why didn't Cain? I think they both knew. They both knew that what God would want involved a sacrifice. And Abel, it says here that it was a peculiar little phrase, firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. Now you don't get fat from living animals. His sacrifice involved the death of some animals. And somewhere, I think, from Adam, he was informed about it, knew what to do. But I think Cain was informed also. But I think it was almost like it was almost like Adam and Eve. Here's what I want. I want a sacrifice of a of a perfect animal 
as an offering to me. And Cain looked at it and said, what a waste. And how did in the world, Abel didn't work for that. His cattle just grew and he got bigger herds and bigger herds. And I'm not going to do that, said Cain. I'm going to give, the, give him the prettiest offering he's ever seen of all the fruit that he's blessed me with. And God's going to change his mind. Well, obviously it didn't work out that way. But two offerings were given. They were different. They were the product of what each was doing at the, the, at the direction of God. And the fact is that Abel believed God when he heard what God wanted. Cain did not. Instead, we see Cain mad. What's the matter with God anyway? He took that stupid sacrifice that Abel put down there, killing an animal and putting it on an altar and says he doesn't want any part of my beautiful, beautiful, beautiful fruit that I'd harvested. What is the matter with him? And it was another part of rebellion, wasn't it? How would he expect to have God approve something he had said they didn't want? Now, I'll admit that I don't find a verse that outlines this exactly. But I think the only way that Cain would have found out is the same way Abel did. Talking with his parents the only parents that happened to be available on the planet. There wasn't any neighbor he could get some bad information from. There wasn't anybody else there. This was the first of a lot of things. There were two results. In four through, chapter 4, verses 4 on, talking about the sacrifice, But for Cain and for his offering, verse 5, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. He was unhappy. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? What makes you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. So what are you going to make of it? He says, but God told them, you must master it. And Cain told Abel, his brother. He went out in, the, out in the field and they had a friendly discussion. No doubt it was a friendly discussion of complete disagreement. Abel told him what the truth was and Cain told him what the truth should be. It sounds a lot like human discussion. And it went to a fine conclusion because they just negotiated a settlement somehow. Oh, wait, it doesn't say that. What it says in verse 7, no, 8, after he told Abel his brother, it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. 
the first two children on the planet. What came from them was a murder. <coughs> and it's a murder, murder over God's acceptance. It was a theological murder. And there was no reconciliation. It amuses me sometimes as I listen to the news that people think that if you just talk over serious disagreements, they'll get resolved. As someone that's worked in that whole field, that is not the case. Sometimes they don't get resolved, and you have a worse, a worse case scenario. But here you got a theological dispute, just like today. They say, well, why didn't the Muslim and the Christian just get together and talk it out? What happens when they get together? It's about the same. There's very often murder and mayhem and terrorism and no resolution. And we've got religious conflict that carries through to today. And this was the first of them. Do you obey God or don't you? That was the question for Cain. And he decided not to. And it goes on, and the Lord still talks to Cain. And the Lord said to Cain, like a parent does, what happened in the living room when that thing got broken? What thing? I didn't notice anything got broken. Lord said to Cain, and he knew full well what the deal was, where is Abel your brother? Where is he? What? And he came, Cain, of course, came up with a, with a slot, snotty answer. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to be keeping track of my brother? I thought he was off in the fields. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to remove your brother's blood from your hand. Looks as if Cain must have dug a hole and thrown Abel's body into it. And it wasn't silence then. Nothing was quiet. God knew exactly what happened and what was said and what was being said. And he told, what, told Cain what his punishment would be. The ground's not going to work for you anymore. Try as you might to plant something that's not going to grow. It's not going to give a good crop. It's going to be a lot different. And it's going to be a lifetime penalty as long as you're here. Now God modified it a little bit. God's grace and mercy were still present. Cain said, oh, this is terrible. Anybody that sees me is going to try and kill me. They're going to know that I'm guilty of murder. And he said, no, I'll protect you from that. I don't want that to happen. People will know that that penalty is not up to them to, to uh, exercise. There was mercy for Cain. And he said, oh, this is terrible. Where can I live? Everybody's going to be against me. And 
That was not the case. Cain lived, had descendants, and so on. The application is strong, I think. What do you believe? What do you believe as a parent? How do you communicate it? Those are questions that have to be answered by parents. What do you do to get that across? And there's always, it can be very easily a little conflict between what you say and what you do. Sometimes you express your deep spiritual life and then you go do something that you're ashamed of, whatever it might be. Remember this. Whatever you do, your children are watching. They're watching and they're drawing their own conclusions. That's a heavy responsibility on parents. And it really came to me from early days. The consistency is what we need to strive for as a Christian. And if we truly believe what the Bible says, we got to live like it. Sometimes that not, may not be helpful in our business or in our life. Nonetheless, it is better to obey God than men. And you know, your children notice it. I had a big lesson that occurred one Christmas. We got a couple of big, a big well-wrapped, you could tell it was a picture of some kind. And it was a thing that our oldest son had written, the one that's with the Lord right now. He'd written this one to Juanita and one to me. There were a couple of pictures in it. And he said, I want you to know some things, some things about my life growing up with you. And he talked about things that I never even thought about. He talked about the time that I would put in on trying to write a sermon, study the Bible, come up with a lesson. He knew how much time I put in on it. He heard most of the sermons, but that wasn't what he was talking about. He was talking about what we did and what he observed. He observed how I resolved some difficult decisions. And we never took a difficult decision without praying about it as a family. Are we going to? I was faced with a situation where I had the kind of job they wanted me to move all the time. And that's scary. Scary for us, but really scary for the kids. And we had one that didn't move well. He didn't. He, didn't, he had a bunch of really tight friends. He didn't want to go anyplace else where you got to start from scratch. We couldn't blame him for that. But we had to know what the Lord had in mind. Was it right to take a, a promotion that was offered, or should we stay put? There's no biblical answer to that. I looked hard. I couldn't even stretch to find an answer to that. He didn't get specific with me, but he he did. Through our prayer, through family discussion, we decided what needed to be done. And one of the biggest factor is what did the Lord want us to do? And he observed that prayer, that kind of an, that kind of attitude in life. 
I never knew he even gave any thought to that. I knew a lot about him. He was our only child for about five years. He was well advanced over the other ones because he was a giant compared to them. They came and complained that he got all the size and what was the matter. But because they they had the attitude, he never had a he never had a, a, an attitude that was real competitive. They were both competitive, and it was a result to me that was really important because he was talking about his walk with the Lord in the midst of all this, based not on what we said. And we said lots of things, believe it or not. He talked about being saved repeatedly. We talked about things that were important to us and why we were doing things. But it isn't what you say. It's what you do. And you have to ask yourself, what's really important? What do the kids see? What is able to be observed? What do you think about God? Does he enter into your life? Or is he something for Sunday? What about Jesus and his death? We come Lord's Day to Lord's Day to remember the death of Jesus Christ. It's important for us to anchor ourselves right there. And that's what we do. That's the value of doing it consistently. And it's the value of your kids seeing it. What are your actions when you go to work? When you have fun? Are these all things that are acceptable as far as the Lord is concerned? The kids need to see it. They need to know what you're thinking about in that connection. Because they are likely to follow what they see. That's my main point. Your kids are likely to follow what they see, not what they say. Now, that doesn't say stop telling them about the gospel. (laughs) Doesn't tell them, tell you to stop talking about what the Lord has done for you, about being saved. I am thankful as I think about it for all of the people that tried to get me saved before I did accept the Lord. I got transferred from one church to another. I went to a Sunday school in a church like this one. And the Sunday school lessons were challenging lessons. Open your Bible up and we're going to look at these four verses and here's what we think it says. You know, What do you think it says? If nothing else, it communicated to me how important the Bible was and doing what it says. That went on for quite a while. And there were a lot of people at that assembly that used to... Because I was a stranger. You know, I'd show up for Sunday school, and then I'd leave when it was time for church. My folks would pick me up, and we'd go to another church with the family. They said, fine, you can go there for Sunday school, but you're going to stay connected to us. We're going to the, go to the church. And we did. And so many times people would come up and say, do you know the Lord? Are you really saved? Are you sure that you're saved? I'm thankful that they did. 
It showed me how important they thought that was and that exposure to the gospel. Whosoever will may come was really important to them. And it had to be observable. Now one of the things that was observable with us was something we really had to wrestle with. I coached football for about 20 years. And every game in the, now these were kids, and I I got into football because Juanita told me he didn't want, didn't like what she saw with one of our, with our oldest kids playing. She didn't want him to learn a lot of new words. And that was the big thing that was being taught and by the coaches. So the only answer to that is to coach football, and I did. And I told the kids what, what was acceptable conduct to me, and it did not include a bunch of swearing. So they didn't. But we had to be observable. That games were played on Sunday afternoons from noon on. It overlapped with where we should be, which was at the chapel, for the meetings in, of the, at the chapel. So we didn't leave for football until the meetings were over at the chapel. Now we looked, I'm sure, more than a little peculiar, hot-footing it out of the place, and the kids running out to the car to change into their football outfits and all that kind of thing. But we never went to football when it interfered with the Lord's work. And they observed that. And (laughs) I don't pretend that's a gospel message, but they knew how important what we felt the standards were as far as our family was concerned, and that included what the Bible said. And it said, do not forsake the assembly of yourselves together. And it didn't include a football practice didn't include a football game. Now, a lot of people didn't understand that. Okay, that was all right. We knew, knew what we were talking about, and the kids knew. And they never had any doubts about it. And I'm thankful for that. And Brian talked a little bit about that in his compliments to us and knew what a strain that put on us. Hey, was a strain in the right place. Sometimes the kids need to know what's a strain and what's easy. So I really thought about this whole idea of family and it turned into an exhortation to parents. And you got an important job. There's no job more important than be able to show Jesus Christ to your kids and their need of a savior. And the Lord's faithful. You pray about it, you get him involved in your decision-making process, and it'll work out right. And I'm thankful for that fact. Let's just close this meeting in a word of prayer, shall we? Father, we are aware that so much of our history is wrapped up in your work on this world. And we are so thankful that we can, in truth, remember the death of Jesus Christ and realize it was for us. So, Lord, we would just ask that you would guide each parent that's here, parent and grandparent and 
anyone else that might have an influence on someone who doesn't know you as yet, use us, we pray, to reach them, to reach grandchildren as well as our own children. We pray for your blessing. Bless now in the baptism to follow. Lord, we just ask that it might be an encouragement to all as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.